Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Han Nguyen. I reached out to Han on Twitter after I saw him tweet something about information asymmetry, and this is one of my interests about when someone has more information than another person, you know, it is very impactful in all areas of life, particularly within finance and trading. Like if you have information that will move the market, then you have access to something that a lot of other people don't, and that is an information asymmetry. Um, it happens in a lot of different places. I once had a run-in with malevolence, and that person was really, really good at uh, basically managing the flow of information. Uh, so this was a really interesting conversation for me personally. Uh, and Han has since become a friend, and he's started to join my breathwork sessions um, throughout the week and has found a lot of value in it too. So if you're interested in doing breathwork, please send me a message on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop III. My DMs are open, at Stuart Alsop III. And you can send me a message and I'll add you to the list of people that I'm providing breathwork for. And we do it every week. Uh, and I'm, doing, I'm continuing to do it here from Medellin, where I'll be for the next couple months before returning back to San Francisco. So yeah, and if you like this episode, please find us on iTunes or Spotify and searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button or giving us a review. Thank you. Have a great day. And he is a fellow intellectual explorer that I uh, met on Twitter, and he posted something about information asymmetry, and I wanted to find out more about what that is, why he's interested in it. So welcome to the show, Han. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. Uh, so we actually started recording, and then it, uh, Zencaster messed up, so we switched to Zoom, and now, uh, but we're talking about information asymmetry, and you mentioned that you were really interested in it because uh, most of the situations we run into in life are uncertain, uh, and we don't really know what's going on. Uh, and so in, information asymmetry plays a huge role in all of that. And you mentioned health uh, right before we got cut off. And I thought it was very interesting that health, because health is such an important thing. Uh, and we know so little about uh, what it is that we do in our daily lives that are healthy. Um, uh, you, know, you know, the standard American diet was basically had propaganda from the American government about what was healthy to eat, turning out that that is not actually that healthy to eat, at least from my experience and from my readings. I'd uh, be curious in, in terms of health, have you found what, what is the relationship between information asymmetry and health in your life? Absolutely. And you touched on something that I thought of the moment I said health, which was that, you know, there was research before saying fats are terrible for us and they put up the food pyramid, just as you mentioned. And historically, they or historically they said it was good for us and as you said now we found not so much lately sugar seems to be kind of not so good for you and they're saying that fats are amazing for you you'll notice you know bulletproof coffee where people put fats in their coffee in the morning um, but to answer your question directly the relationship is for me the more i know the less asymmetrical it is for me, between my current state, let's say how healthy I am, what my uh, musculature is, what my blood levels are like, and where I would like to be, the asymmetry between the reality and the ideal is reduced through reducing the information asymmetry. Mm. And this leads to another point, which is that we also don't know because there's the what we eat. But there's also a huge environmental thing that 
affects our genes and affects our gene expression and all these things. Like right now I'm sitting in a room, the air quality that I'm breathing is probably all right because I'm in San Francisco. Um, but if I happen to, you know, be transported to New Delhi, India, all of a sudden I'd have this other environmental factor. And then you take the mycoplastics in water, you take, you know, like lack of minerals and food. So there's all these other things that we just don't know either about how, how it's going to affect our lives. Absolutely. And you mentioned air quality. That just reminded me of one study I've read recently, which I totally stumbled into this on accident. But And I can send this to you later if you're interested or for hosting. But it talks about how when we drive in our cars and use the air recirculation function, if we drive for too long, it can actually increase the CO2 concentration inside the car. And as that rises, you have various degenerative neurological effects like dizziness at an extreme level, but you'll lose at mild levels, uh, you'll lose cognitive power, reflex speed, and generally have your judgment impaired in a way that you may not even realize is happening. Do you remember the time that it took to, for that to happen? Um, don't quote me directly on this, but I remember it being around half an hour for it to reach Huh. pretty highly dangerous levels and it builds up steadily towards that so r- drive with your windows open <laughs> <laughs> or don't use air recirculation at the minimum uh interesting um and this reminded me of another thing that kind of has something to do with information asymmetry but uh i've been learning a lot about the breath and i've been leading these kind of um breath work sessions uh every day 10 minute breath work sessions uh and so it's kind of rekindled my interest in the science behind uh uh, science behind breathing. Um, and uh, one thing I recently learned is that carbon dioxide, which most people think they don't want, is actually really, really important, of course. And uh, it's really important in the blood and it actually expands the blood vessels. Uh, so uh, carbon dioxide in the blood will expand the blood vessels. I don't know actually what that does, what, why we, we'd want that. But so there's this, this balance between oxygen and carbon dioxide. So the thing that's really the question that's now coming to my mind, and I'm not asking this question unless you happen to know a lot about breathing, but uh, is as we do these breath exercises, for example, there's one where you exhale twice the length that you inhale. So you inhale for three seconds and you exhale for six seconds. And now in that exhale, when you're six seconds, you're exhaling a bunch of carbon dioxide and you're exhaling it from your lungs. uh, And then in the lungs, they get uh, they transfer oxygen and I assume carbon dioxide into the capillaries, which then um, go out into the blood. Uh, and I, so there's all these questions I have about what it is we're actually doing when we do these breath breath exercises, because uh, there's like thousands of them, and I know probably about maybe a hundred. Um, and uh, and and so it's like I'm really curious as to what what it is I'm actually doing when I'm when I'm when I'm guiding myself or guiding other people. Um, does that come up? Does that bring up anything? It doesn't have to be, do you, do you have a practice? Do you have a, a breathing practice or anything like that? Nothing so formal as that. And I definitely am not knowledgeable about traditions or practices passed down as it sounds like you are, but you're bringing up to mind for me what I've heard about breathing as it relates to the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Have you heard anything about that? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So if I remember correctly, when you breathe in deeply, it stimulates your 
sympathetic nervous system. Is that right? That's correct. When you breathe out, you exhale deeply. It stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system. And personally, I've found that, as you say, if you have shorter inhales as compared to your longer exhales, it's, for example, a great method for relaxing, slowing your heartbeat, and falling asleep as one kind of thing. And this is me talking about the practical benefits. I think you could probably speak more to how breathing practices relate to personal and spiritual development as a whole, which I'd love to hear about. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. Spiritually, there's this weird thing that's been coming up in my head a lot. I've, I've gave up most of these for about uh, six months to a year. And I gave up my, even my meditation, my formal meditation practice because meditation ultimately is a search for what is real or what is true. Uh, and a lot of these practices that we do aren't really meditation. They may point to meditation, but they, but they are like meditation is beyond it. And it's like a holistic thing that incorporates everything about your life. And, and, and so spiritually, I've actually found that some of these practices, if they become the goal, um, are, uh, traps or waste of time or all the, all these different things. But now it's interesting because now I'm bringing them back into my life and I'm finding that I feel great. Uh, uh, yeah, which is which is interesting, but then but then feeling great shouldn't be the goal either. I mean, it's not that feeling great shouldn't be the goal, but feeling great is not the goal because the the the, the goal should always be truth. Uh, and then an important byproduct of truth of the search for truth is is that it does feel great. Um, but uh, but so but like having so I'm doing these practices. I'm sharing them with other people. They're practices. They're not the whole truth, but they are seem to be very helpful. And what I'm finding is I have a history of trauma in that in that I'm finding that these are very, very helpful tools for trauma, uh, for uh, resolving trauma, because trauma also has an effect on the breath. Uh, about 10 years ago, when I first started uh, breathing uh, intentionally with these in a Qigong class, I noticed that my diaphragm didn't descend into my belly. Um, and so it took four years, five years uh, for me to regulate my breath in a way that my body would actually start to breathe naturally with the diaphragm descending into the, into the, into the abdomen. Um, wow. and, yeah, it took a long time. It was very painful. Uh, and, uh, and, and now, uh, and now it's, now it's like, now my breathing is pretty normal. And, 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 and like when I'm, I, I'm breathing mostly through my nose, that was another thing. I didn't breathe through my nose for probably for a long time. And, and my brother was not be doing that. <laughs> really? Yeah. And that's the other thing I've noticed is now anytime anybody says the word breath, it's like automatically my, I, my breathing starts to, to, to uh, deepen, which is really cool. Wow. That actually brought up a few things for me. The first thing I would ask about, which is related to information asymmetry before I dive off into the more kind of breath related stuff is for you personally, do you think that feeling good is in general a sign of approaching truth or resolving or mitigating information asymmetry? Do you think it's a sign of you discovering true, whatever that means to you, facts about your world or your reality? Interesting. Uh, I would say it's hard to, it's hard to say because uh, I know that a lot of times that search for truth is very, very uncomfortable. Uh, but I think that's mostly a byproduct of me uh, having a lot of delusion before and 
uh, and kind of working my way through that delusion and unwinding that delusion. Um, uh, and that is a very, very painful process because my, it is essentially destroying my, my, uh, my sense of who I am because my identity. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that is very painful, very difficult. Ultimately it does feel good once I've gotten to that point, but then there's always new layers that show up. So it's, it's, uh, um, so for the past three years, I would say it, it has been extremely painful and just uncomfortable. Um, uncomfortable is probably the better word. Uh, and so, but then, but then I get to the higher states of feeling really, really, really good. And in those times I do feel like it, I, I feel like where I'm feeling in this kind of bliss state where I'm like, okay, I'm onto something. And then another, and then another, another wave of like kind of identity comes up or, 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 and, and then it becomes very painful. Again. Uh, particularly recently I've been wor um, working with this framework that physical pain, unless it's really tied to a, a actual physical injury, like getting, you know, knife cutting your skin, uh, physical pain is probably more has to do with emotional pain that is unrecognized. Um, and so for me, uh, it, it was just happening, uh, uh, an hour ago where my jaw started to hurt. Um, and, uh, and then I asked myself the question, what is the emotion, uh, that this jaw, that this pain in the jaw represents? And then I got fear. Um, and then I felt the fear and then the, the pain is now not there anymore. So that's, um, but yeah, it, but you know, who knows whether it was that or, or, or another thing. Right. Right. And I'm glad that worked out for you. That yeah. brings up something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, wow. So many threads are just opening up. I love this. Uh, but before I dive, in, dive into that, I wanted to point out, you mentioned before, sometimes optimizing just for the good feelings in a search for mitigating information asymmetry in your search for truth is not always the best thing to do because you can get sidetracked or focused on that. I think it's Goodhart's law is the, mm. the internet colloquial for mm. that. And also you brought up focusing on the search for truth can sometimes, or a lot of times, bring up discomfort or pain when you dissolve illusions and other pieces of identity. And I wanted to mention, it sounds like that's another place where you're applying the same thinking, where some people focus on the pain is gain or it's only good if you're suffering kind of thing, but then that's shifting the focus from your search and its results over to something else that is not the search and not the fruit of its mm -hmm. efforts. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's ultimately all, all this, this goes into a deep spiritual question of, of everything that we experience is phenomena. Um, and it's all arising in our experience. So pain would be arising in my experience, but I am not the pain. I am the one witnessing the pain. Um, uh, and that can, that's like a, recursive loop that keeps on going back because you can also witness the witness the 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 thing witnessing the pain um so there's you, there's always a step back you can go to but anything that can be observed um is not is not is not truth i would say um it, it's wow. uh yeah I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think of that yeah that's actually something i wanted to ask you about when you jumped into the kind of recursive or meta of the meta mm. uh, because when I have my own meditation practice, you know, I can observe my breath or the sensations that I'm focusing on and then observe that I'm observing it. And I wonder, is this correct for some sense of correct that I can't quite specify? Mm. And 
how do you know when you're looking at the right thing, when you're asking the right questions, mm. basically focusing on the right sens sensations or intuition. I'm almost having trouble describing these things, but does that make sense? Uh, not quite. I can, uh, I can give you, I can reflect on what, what I heard there was basically you get into this recursive loop where you're observing the observer uh, and you're witnessing the phenomena, but you're, you're not sure on what phenomena is the phenomena that you should be focusing on. That's it. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I would say that there's a, there's a, a judgment implied that there should be some phenomena that you are aware of, but whatever is happening in the moment is happening. Um, and so, so where, where does this, 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 uh, judgment of, of what type of phenomena is the right phenomena to be, uh, focusing on come from, where does that come from? Wow. I see. So you're, that itself becomes the next or subsequent object of your exactly. investigation, as it were, yep. of your awareness. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I know we veered off a little bit from the topic of info asymmetry, but I wanted to point well, out that this. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we haven't. <laughs> oh, so we're on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking service level we have, but yeah, this is definitely the, the kind of process that I think about going through for anything we meant we mentioned before on the Zencaster before it got cut off, how it appears in business, in health, in relationships. And the only way we can change the asymmetry or make it more level is to ask questions, to find the people who know more and find out if they're willing to share their knowledge. So I'm going to throw a loop in there too, because I, I, I don't think it's about finding other people. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of the answers that we seek outside actually, and this is kind of a cliche, but are, are within us that we can actually, a lot of the answers, we don't need to go uh, to other places, but it's actually the question that matters most. So are we asking ourselves the right question? And of course, other people are going to help And this. I'm not saying that, you know, this in the sense of like science, uh, or cause I'm, you know, if I, if I want to learn about neurobiology, I'm going to go, I'm going to go read a book by Robert Sapolsky or, or go and try to interview him. Um, but, uh, but in terms of these bigger life questions, like what is, should I be in this relationship with this person? Nobody else can answer that question. Uh, other people can, can give you feedback, but they, it's information asymmetry again, because I, if I'm, so say I have a coach that I'm working with, uh, I, and I trust them a lot. Uh, and I'm in a relationship over time where I'm asking them these big questions I've learned over time that. I can ask all these questions. I can ask their advice, but ultimately they're not inside of me. So they can't, they can't accurately put a framework uh, onto all the different multifactorial things that are a part of my life. So ultimately it becomes kind of like that we, we, it's, it's really difficult to take on advice. This is, this is a good question that we could go into unless there's something else, but what is the role of advice for you in dealing with this information asymmetry? Absolutely. Let me get to that. Let me take five seconds here to write down a couple things that popped in my head so I can have them for later. And then I'll get right to it. So I'm typing out just a couple of notes while we're talking here. And when you were talking about not finding other people, but finding for yourself the questions and what matters as they relate to things that are personal to you, it reminds me of a thing I've been thinking about, which is 
the idea that nobody can have your experiences for you. Mm. Like you say, they can't go through the pain of a breakup for you. Um, and I think that is a concept that we tend to have trouble wrapping our heads around, which is why, as you say, we sometimes end up chasing down information more than sitting in our own experience. And it reminds me of your episode with Kepio Gupta, MD, and how he describes people are looking for prescriptions when sometimes what we need is descriptions. I don't think he said that particularly, but I'm adding that on because another thing I've been thinking about related to this is two things we need in this kind of sitting in our experience and then moving forward from it as solid ground is curiosity and conviction. Mm. And those two things nobody else can have for us. Mm. I'm going to write that down myself. Uh, <laughs> curiosity and conviction. Um, I've been really interested in curiosity recently. I've started a couple of Facebook groups where um, you, you can only ask questions and I love it because it's like, I feel like a life goal of mine uh, has been answered because I've now created a group where it's totally acceptable to ask a question and then anybody can answer with another question. <laughs> uh, so, so it's like, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's really fun. Um, and so curiosity, these questions, cause I've stopped, I've stopped like my, I've, I've, I still make statements, but I've found that the value of making statements is, is, is very, very low compared to the value of asking questions. Um, and, uh, this, and so curiosity, what is curiosity? What like, and there's a, there's this other thing in it as well, which, which, uh, which I've wanted to talk to you about, which is that, uh, there, there is this curiosity I have that is leading me closer and closer to essentially what some would call awakening. Um, uh, uh, and it's, it's, I read somewhere that somebody else described their awakening process and they said that curiosity killed the cat essentially. Cause there's this weird thing where I'm afraid of it. I've got this fear of awakening. I've got a fear of, of, um, of, uh, of stepping fully into uncertainty and, and like diving headfirst into, into knowing that I'm going to die and that there's going to, there is, uh, that this personality is going to die and that, that there's the, that there's this deep uncertainty over what that means. Um, but I've also got this other part of me that's intensely curious about it. Uh, and so it's like prodding and like, like trying to, um, step into it, but then pull back and step into it and pull back. And so it's really interesting that this, this curiosity thing is happening. I wonder for you, how, how does curiosity show up in your life? It actually shows up in, all forms from the banal to extraordinary. Mm. Um, to use an ordinary example here, there's an audition for a show that I'm going to tonight. And at first, it wasn't my idea to sign up. It was a family member's. And at first, I was like, oh, I'm so tired. I a lot of work. Um, you know, all this stuff that was just really depressing me in the kind of affect, the valence sense of it. And then once I turned around the curiosity and was like, well, I wonder what it would be like to do this. I've never done this kind of show before yeah. I instantly felt a surge of energy and kind of vibrancy and said oh this actually might be fun I want to see what this is all about 
and it'll be just an experience that will show me a glimpse of a world that I've never seen. And that's how I'm feeling about it right now. That's the ordinary example, but the extraordinary is actually uh, very close to something with something you said. It resonates with me in that you're pursuing this curiosity about awakening, let's say, and reading about others' experiences, hearing what they have to say about their own, yet shying away from it in some aspects. Mm. That is tougher because curiosity alone doesn't seem like it's enough to, I don't know, turn the tide maybe. Mm. There's still something that's stronger that's pushing me away. Mm. And it sounds like you're feeling the same thing. Would you be able to describe Mm. what exactly those fears maybe bring up in you yeah um and it's something i it's that came up on the podcast and anytime i try to look at that fear specifically um it always changes so i can't it's it's not something concrete that i'm afraid of well okay so i guess it would be uh ego death uh so the the the, something about that word ego death has always kind of like scared me because mm-hmm. uh, it, and somebody else said it as the primary spiritual path is to die before we die. So to to have a, a death like experience uh, where 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 the the identity falls away and we're we're confronted with with l- limitless non linear universal experience and being connected with everything else and. You know, these are all words from somebody who hasn't experienced it. So, I, and it's only from, uh, from like the model I've created. Um, so that seems highly uncomfortable. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and to 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 me, and 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 that's and this me thing that I'm talking about seems like it's that's the thing that would die. So I think it's their their. Um, it, but and then the craziest thing, because every time that I confront this fear, I uh, the going back to that feeling great thing, the feeling the uh, like my life starts to have a joy to it that is uh, more constant and consistent, and it's like this backdrop of joy. The more that I walk in and run into this fear um, and kind of like just dive headfirst into it, uh, the more just life opens up, and I'm really enjoying that part. Um, but then every time that fear comes up, because it's the mind killer, because like every time the fear is part of my experience, everything else evaporates. And I've just, I just, I like the f- fear takes over. Uh, and there's just this like, uh, is, and it's, and it's, and it's uh, very difficult to, to do anything else with all of the, all of the other emotions. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with them. Uh, but this fear one is like, it's just, it's tricky in so many different ways. Absolutely. Fear in my experience, causes me to wither, you might say, or shrink away. And it totally blots out that joy that you're talking about. Uh, you're, what you're saying is evoking within me the sense that I sometimes get when I'm out for a walk, even just in my neighborhood, of seeing the trees and buildings around me and the sky and knowing that I exist, that I have this sense of experience and i don't know know, about other people's beliefs about where we come from on a metaphysical or spiritual level and where we go but just for example to have this time of experiencing Mm -hmm. 
the experience of walking or feeling the concrete under my feet and seeing the greens reflected off the leaves brings out this sense of contentment, deep-seated, which is, I can't even describe how it uh, seeps into my interactions with people and the exact opposite happens when I feel afraid. Mm. It suppresses emotion and it suppresses true good interaction. And that's something I've been working on with limited success so far. As you say, the process of resolving these things is a little bit more uncomfortable than if you were to just let things go on as they are. Mm. But that leads me to a question about what you had just mentioned, which is you feel comfortable with other things. I have to admit that I don't always feel comfortable, for example, with, with anger, either mm. expressing it, feeling it, or observing it in people around me. Is that something <laughs> that you come to? Sorry. Yeah, that, that, that was a, I, I did not speak truthfully. <laughs> anger is still a huge, huge problem for me. Uh, ah, yes. uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm very uncomfortable when people express anger towards me and I'm uncomfortable being angry myself. Although that is that, that being, I'm much more comfortable now expressing anger and feeling anger. Um, and, and fear is way bigger for me than, than anger. Um, but yeah, particularly other people expressing anger is something that I have a huge, uh, huge issue with, uh, still. Um, so yeah, no, no fear, fear and anger are the two ones. And I don't think that they're, they're that unrelated to, um, cause I know that the huge part of the reason why I have so much fear is because family members of mine had anger. Um, and then, and then that, that anger was so intense, uh, that there was this in, uh, also intense fear reaction. Cause it's like when you're a kid and somebody's angry, um, it's like, it's, that's a super powerful emotion that, that oh, makes you hide. Mm-hmm. what were you going to say? I was just agreeing with you there. I've, had similar experiences and realizing that even to the present day, I think I tweeted about this recently when mm-hmm. somebody around me is expressing anger, I will simultaneously uh, admit I will play possum, be very passive, but also play a kind of sensitive caretaker. I orient mm-hmm. myself to kind of meet their immediate needs. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. I, I do a similar thing. Um, what do you think would be, a way for us to expand our awareness of that and, you know, maybe not improve it. That's a very kind of judgmental lens, but grow more comfortable mm. with these situations. Yeah. Particularly with other people, it's really hard because it, 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 I get triggered every time. So, so if, if and it happened with a friend of mine recently where um, uh, she expressed I, the, the emotional tone of the com- of her side of the conversation was anger um, and I was just, I, I, I was like, I do not want to deal with this. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, and essentially like cut off the conversation, uh, and then, and then was triggered for like two days after it, uh, just in the, in a ruminative loop where I'm like, she did wrong. She did all these different things. Um, and it's so difficult and I'm not sure I can do anything. I'm not sure there's, there's, um, except for just feel the emotion and, and to, to kind of welcome it. That's the biggest thing that I've found with, with, 
negative emotions is to to flip the switch because usually we get aversive to negative emotions and we say, I don't want this, I'm going to resist this, but resistance never works uh, with emotions because they're happening inside of us. So it's, so it's and flip the switch and so mentally actually ask for more of the emotion um, has been one of the most potent things that I've started to do it, but you can't, you can't fake it. You actually have to have to actually ask for more of it and really genuinely want more of this emotion. Um, and that feels like a, it's like a switching the magnet basically. So you, you ask for more of it and then it, uh, because it's an emotion and it happens in a kind of strict time period, uh, it passes through you and then you, you essentially integrate that emotion as opposed to resisting it because I found that the more I resist emotions, the more they stick inside my body. Um, and then there's all these kind of, uh, things that we do to make that process of, uh, uh, sticking the emotion in our body acceptable to the rational mind, including repressing it, suppressing it. Uh, and there's a few other ones, but I'm not, I'm not remembering them. Um, but yeah, it's so, uh, the question. Go for it. Yeah. So this is me, of course, wanted to reduce my info asymmetry here. But uh, when you said sometimes we are aversive to these emotions, we resist them. It reminded me of that quote that says, what you resist persists. Yep. Right? And this is something I've been thinking about and curious about because I've seen this same kind of mindset or sentiment expressed, but I'm not really sure what it feels like, what it feels like from the inside. I still don't know what it feels like to, for myself, go through the sequence of asking for more of flipping the polarity of that magnet. And then you use the word integrating. I love that. I've been using it so often lately of integrating that emotion at the outside. Can you describe what that feels like for you? We could, we could try it right now. Um, uh, is, uh, are you comfortable trying it right now? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go for uh, it. So do you have an emotion that is present right now? If uh, What is present for you right now? I have some curiosity, of course, from our call, and a little bit of nervousness from being on a public forum. So this, this is a perfect one. That nervousness, uh, what does it feel like in your body? Where do you feel it? Hmm. It's in the back of my neck and the line of my shoulders. They're tensed up. Mm -hmm. And so without trying to really change that or relax that, can you ask for more of it? This is interesting to me. I'm not sure what associations you have for ask for more. Mm -hmm. That's why I was curious. Um, let me see if I can reframe it in my own words here. It sounds like to me asking for more is is diving into the experience, um, welcoming it, mm, welcoming. So particularly, particularly connecting with that sense of tension in the shoulders and the back of the neck, really kind of welcoming that and saying yes to it. I see. I don't know if welcome is the right word for it, but settled my awareness onto it instead of shying away from it. And there was, this is really interesting to me. This is 
an experience I actually haven't had about this before. Normally, noting this kind of tension, especially along the line of my shoulders, where it just was, leads me to consciously try to relax them and you know strain and push against that. But this time, just resting my attention on it, they naturally relax a little bit. But the really interesting part was this sense of chill or tingling that ran down the front of my torso actually in synchronicity with that that has never happened before mm. and you wow. can also you can also do something with the resistance because noticing the drive to relax it to consciously because that's that's essentially a resistance to it you don't want it anymore you want to relax it um and so one of the other really helpful uh techniques is to is to uh become so move the awareness from the tension to the resistance to the tension. Um, and then just noticing that resistance itself and noticing the, the I don't want it, not trying to change that either, but just noticing that, and that will lead to dissipation of it as well. I see. It's like we were talking before about moving our awareness of our cognition and our metacognition, our meta-metacognition during meditation to being aware of the desire to be aware of the right quote-unquote thing during right. meditation. And that's, and that's, that's a, you just hit on the other thing, which is that the backdrop to all, all the stuff we've been talking about is that if you, if you really want it to move through your whole being, uh, to witness it not as you, but as something, as an energy field that you're witnessing. Uh, because if you can witness it, as an energy field that gives it freedom to then move through you as opposed to you identifying with it. Absolutely. You're touching on something. If I could bring this back around to explicitly information asymmetry and ways for mitigating it. I feel like my thoughts on that lately have been, if you're wrapped up in your identity, if you're wrapped up in judging yourself or pushing for some type of goal, whether that's external or internal, of course there are goals that you can work towards. But if you're you're straining mentally in a way and really focused on the aversion or pain or whatever else drives it, you're actually crowding out the awareness that is required for mitigating that asymmetry if you're in a conversation with somebody and you're, and this is the most quintessential example, but I think it can resonate with a lot more people. If you're in a conversation with somebody and you're in your head focused on how nervous you feel, worrying about if you'll look stupid or if you'll mess up and say something weird or you're angry at them or judging them or anything like that, you're not aware of what's happening in the moment. You're not aware of the emotions that they're evoking in you. You're not aware of the signs of the emotions that you're evoking in them. And you're not aware of the content of what's being passed back and forth. And if you're not aware of that, then the asymmetry is going to perpetuate or even grow worse. That is a really interesting point. Um, so, and it's it brought up a lot of memories of childhood and uh, being in awkward conversations and then letting that awkwardness uh, really get to me. It still happens today where we're, oh yeah, yeah, yeah where, the, <laughs> where the awkwardness as I put my attention more on the awkwardness, not from the sense of like witnessing the awkwardness, but from being like, okay, that awkwardness is happening. It's there. It's going to kill me. I'm, I hate it. I want it to go away. 
um, and just repeatedly like focusing it and, and then it grows. Um, and then it becomes the only part of the conversation. And then I would have to leave the conversation because it is just so awkward. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Can I point out something there? Go for it. We are, uh, this is actually an example of, of what we're talking about is being able to witness, witness these things and be aware of what's happening in the conversation and therefore you know, integrate them or create them as objects of attention. And I wanted to draw attention to what you said, which is that one of your kind of internal reactions to that awkwardness is it'll kill me. And I just wanted to, to hone in on that and say it resonates with me. I've had maybe not in words, but it definitely feels as, as um, impactful as that statement and its wording implies. And yeah, then that, cause I hadn't thought about it before, before I said it that way. And, and it is a very interesting way to think about it. And, um, and I wonder, the, this is an open question, why, why these intense emotions feel like death, like going, cause it, it does have that kind of particularly fear but all of them, that awkwardness, the, the anger, they, they, they f have the emotional resonance of, of death um, or of, of danger. And it's so interesting that emotions can be dangerous because now I'm finding that they're not. They're, they're dangerous to the psyche, but they're not dangerous to me or to the, to, you know, and they're all, in a way almost dangerous to the, to the physical body too because if they persist in, in the body, then they, then they have all sorts of physiological effects, um, tension, stress, uh, ulcers, uh, you know, all these, all these different, different things. So it's, it's, it's the, this, this danger of emotions is something really interesting. What do, what do you think about the, the danger of emotion? A lot actually came up while you were talking about it. This is a great example for me personally of how information asymmetry and attempting to reduce it has been a helpful thing in my life. Um, as you say, having lots of emotional pressure built up, I found out, I learned, received the info as it were, that it creates actual measurable physical changes in your endocrine system and in your brain as well. You have elevated levels of cortisol, of norepinephrine, and that itself has an effect on all the other physical systems of your body. So yes, it is dangerous. Um, but focusing on that, of course, like we say before, if you bring your awareness to it and resist and strain against it, only, only makes it worse. And understanding where it comes from, um, learning the information about what generates these things in us as humans has helped me kind of think about it and not only think about it, but remain more just aware of it and integrate it as you say. Mm. So this is really interesting. I don't have anything specific to what you just said, but it brought up something else, which is that uh, I want to, I want to have a conversation about information asymmetry and agency. So I, I, I read Ooh, this yes. one, I, I read this one uh, science fiction book that talked about, uh, it's a, in the cyberpunk genre, and it I can't remember the name of it, but it talked about uh, this this uh, um, this guy had this cat, uh, and the cat was created. It was like either the cat died and he recreated it with a computer or or something like that. But somehow the the cat had artificial intelligence, 
Um, and then it talked about the artificial intelligence of the cat proceeding so quickly that it was able to have theory of mind over its owners. Uh, and so it could accurately predict the owner's behavior 10 steps, 20 steps, 100 steps down the road so that the whole game throughout the whole book, the cat was basically running. I gave away the ending of the book, but I don't remember the name. So but, but <laughs> basically, if you find out at the end that the cat has been running the game for the whole time with nobody knows it because his theory of mind was so good. Uh, and then this brings to mind like, so, and then this conversation that we're having, I'm, I'm recognizing that you are an agent and, and, and this is one of the things I love about doing a podcast is that uh, uh, I, I'm the most effective way to learn I've been finding is, is be in conversation or be in relationship with another agent uh, in order to, um, in order to come to the truth. And uh, so I wonder what this, this idea of agency and, um, uh, information asymmetry comes, comes up for you. Wow. You've touched on a topic that not only have I been thinking about, I have some things that resonate within it. It's the second part of that curiosity and conviction I mentioned earlier. We have, we need curiosity to explore, to be in relation to other agents, to want to know what goes on in uh, our loved ones' heads, in our coworkers' heads, even in our enemies' heads or just strangers' heads. Our curiosity leads us to new experiences, to really experience new viewpoints and information for ourselves, and that leads to conviction. We can read all we want about, as you mentioned, others' experiences of awakening, for example, or others' experiences in um, terrible personal situations, uh, really stressful or uh, frightening or even hurtful situations. But until we have experience of that, or for a lighter note, for really joyful situations, winning a trophy in a sport that you've never played, that kind of thing, until we have specific experience with that, we don't develop a deep-seated conviction about our beliefs and our behaviors. And without that deep-seated conviction, we don't maximally exercise our agency mm -hmm. in meaningful and even pro-social or fulfilling ways. Yep, that's uh, you nailed it. Uh, and that conviction is so key. And one of my previous guests talks about uh, in that frame about Nietzsche and doing that curiosity, exploring until you found that conviction. Um, and then knowing that you're, because you have this curiosity, knowing that you've been wrong so many times before, knowing that you could be wrong, but being like, okay, well, I still got to act. So how am I going to act? Uh, knowing that I'm going to be wrong. And that, that's where kind of faith comes in. Um, and, and seems you, you described it well, that curiosity pinging you against certain situations and you can't, you can't get that information from a book. You can't get that information from reading somebody else's experience. Uh, but maybe that, maybe that's wrong. Maybe you can model. It's like playing little model games in your head of like modeling. Yes. How, how would I react in this situation? Cause they've been shown that visualization is very, very effective for, yes. for success. Yeah, absolutely. I would even venture a bit further and go back to what we were saying previously earlier is that we're not always trying to find 
other people or their experiences or external information to us. We do need to find our internal um, experience, I suppose. But it's extremely helpful to have external reference points that we can use as kind of relative measurements, I suppose. That's kind of clinical data as reference points <laughs> for our internal experience. Does my feeling of joy in this moment kind of match up with how I've heard other people describe a similar phenomena in a similar situation? That is super interesting because and it reminds me of, so as, as you're saying that I was thinking we all have joy, we all have anger, we all have fear, we all, these emotional things are all the same for everybody in terms of the, the raw emotion happening. Everybody has these emotions, they're common to the human experience, mm-hmm. but the way that they're expressed is uniquely individual. Um, and and this, this goes into something I read in Robert Sapolsky's Behave, uh, his book Behave, which talks about the um, gene expression in the frontal cortex is incredibly uh, individual, so that my the difference between my um, gene expression in the frontal cortex and your gene expression in the frontal cortex is larger than the entire difference between the average of human beings and the average of primates. Um, so, so the inter-individual difference in gene expression in the frontal cortex is like crazy different. Um, uh, so that we all are very, very different, but then we also have these emotions that are very similar. Um, but the, the expression of those things is all very different. Wow, that, that factoid of the difference between our individual expressions and the averages, especially across species, just blows my mind. That's absolutely astounding to me. Crazy, right? Yeah, that brings to mind for me, though, how as part of my thoughts on reducing or otherwise thinking about information asymmetry, another shtick that I've been on lately is building shared context which to me is basically reducing the information asymmetry between Mm. yourself and whoever else you might be conversing with and not only reducing the asymmetry, but aligning your background beliefs, your context around whatever particular topic you might be on and uh, something good or somebody good for this is a mutual of mine on Twitter Ryan, his handle is at context underscore ing. Um, he talks about this kind of stuff all the time. Would I recommend that you listeners check him out if you haven't already. Can you repeat that? What's his handle? It is at context underscore ing, at C-O-N-T-E-X-T underscore I-N-G. Uh, I found context of context, but I couldn't find couldn't find that. But I'll... I'll You've said it enough times to, that my listeners will get it and I'll, I'll ask you later about it. Um, so that's really, and what does he talk about? He, his whole kind of mode of, of discourse is talking about the, the context of things. There's infinite nuance to mm-hmm. be found mm-hmm. in, in our context. And that kind of is why I brought up all of this is because your point about our individual expressions evoked that in me. I thought about, my efforts to create shared context with my coworkers, my friends and my family. And it is made maybe not difficult, but an interesting and very nuanced effort by the fact that we are all common or similar at some level 
mm. but express it in completely and almost unknowably sometimes different ways. This, yeah, this brings up a lot. And uh, the context is really interesting because, for example, this conversation, I have very little context. I don't, you know, I don't know what you do. I, 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 we had one tweet interaction. We've had about three t- tweet interactions. Um, and, uh, I knew, I knew from that, from reading your tweet about information asymmetry that we would have a good conversation, but there's a lot of information asymmetry yet. I've been finding it regularly. Like this is something that happens to me pretty much every time I sit down with somebody, I don't need to know about them, um, in order to have a really interesting conversation because I can continuously bring myself to what is kind of happening right now and what is, what is of interest. And I, 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 you know, I can, I can, I can tell I can usually from the introduction, I can find something, a thread that will lead us for the rest of the conversation. Um, and I don't need that much context, uh, which is super interesting. Then the other thing that came to mind was that you have a lot more context on me because you've been reading or you've been listening to the podcast uh, to prepare for this, right? That's right. And watching your tweets, all the questions that you come up with, which by the way, are absolutely fascinating. I love it. This is really funny because this is information asymmetry again, because I... I've, I've, I, this behavior came from Quora of asking questions. Quora taught me to ask these questions in a way, in a very simple way that doesn't give a lot of context purposefully. Um, uh, and it's really interesting because I often wonder what people think of it when I'm just constantly asking questions. I have no idea what, I'm sure I piss off a lot of people, uh, but I'm pr- <laughs> probably don't piss off that many people. I don't, I don't know. I, I just, this is information and symmetry. I have no idea what other people think. Um, and you know, I've been trying to get, I'm, I'm getting better at not caring as much, but, um, uh, and that has been super liberating, not caring as much about what other people think, but, um, yeah, I can only imagine your point about a uh, real quick, let me interrupt with a note. My laptop battery's running down. I've got about 15 minutes left here. I don't know how much time you had. That should be good. Yeah. We'll take about five to 10 minute, more minutes. Okay, great. Um, I was going to jump off on another point related to that, but did you have anything you wanted to have no, before it. our time's up? Go for it. Awesome. Thank you. When you are talking about asking questions and not giving up information, that's actually a bullet point I wrote down in my Rome research note that I have on a information asymmetry in preparation for this call. This is a bullet content is about the trick of mitigating or increasing information asymmetry in a way that's advantageous to you. Like you said, if you ask questions, then you're not giving up as much information. The thing about asking questions is that it does give up some, which is, oh, did you have a point about that? Well, yeah, the, so, cause, and, and the, uh, you made an assumption that it might not be correct about why I don't put context and it's not actually to get information. Well, I guess it is ultimately to get information, the right type of information, but it's ultimately so that people don't have the context so that I can get more answers than what I'm expecting. Because if I put the context, then that narrows it down to a piece that people will be able to answer very easily. But if I keep the question broad and contextless, it then creates uh, a lot more potentials where, in what ways that could be answered. Because I'm not, whenever I ask a question, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm asking myself the question, I'm asking everybody else the question, and I don't really care about the answer. I'm more interested in, in what questions actually get sparked from that question. Um, I see. And yeah, I should say I was, I had moved too hastily into information asymmetry as a concept in adversarial relationships. I should clarify, I did, I do understand that when you ask them, you're trying not to create adversarial relationships, but rather you're trying to bias 
the questions uh, less. You're trying not to contaminate other people's context with your own. Well, let's talk about this adversarial thing because that's that's interesting. I'm sure you have interesting insights into it because it's something that I, because of this anger thing, I also like. I want, I want, I want to be friends with everyone. So it's like I don't. I don't. Oh my God. Yes. I, yeah, I try not. I try not to engage too much in adversarial. But of course, I have them. There, you know, I, there's people that I think are my enemies or, or that are that have this type of flavor of enemy. Um, and uh, and I'd love to talk about what 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 you know about adversarial type of of. of relationships in information asymmetry. Absolutely. I'm going to shade this slightly over into, you won't get too detailed or controversial. I hope here. The example is for me, politics. I interact with quite a few people who express anger and therefore evoke fear in me um, over the course of, you know, my day or my week from all sorts of political spheres. Um, and, of course, this is fertile ground for adversarial relationships, mm -hmm. as I'm sure everyone has, can agree on now. But to bring that back around to information asymmetry, it's been helping me actually with the anger and fear because when you ask questions, you're obviously not giving away as much information. It is, especially in an adversarial relationship, any bit of information is really key. Uh, but it is giving a little bit in that you may not agree right away, or maybe you do agree. It's leaving that vague. Um, so I found that asking questions has little aspects that you can, or nuance, I should say, that you can be really aware of to subtly and I would say delicately convey. Um, how do I phrase this? conversational content mm. that may otherwise bias or contaminate your shared context. Mm. I'm being a little vague here, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So a question I have for you is how do you know when somebody in an information asymmetry environment and somebody is adversarial, but they don't let you know that they're adversarial? Uh, how do you know about this or how do you deal with that? Hmm, that's a really good one. And like we said before, it applies to business and relationships. Um, the top of my head answer for me, which I'm still working on practicing, obviously, is you ask for investment, whether that's emotional, physical, financial, whatever it may be. Like, hey, can, let's sit over here. I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable or asking their opinion on something and noting the level of investment you receive in return for your request, your good faith request. Yeah. There it is. That's interesting. How do you, and so that's the way that you figure out whether somebody might be adversarial or not. Um, and here's, this is the biggest one for me in information asymmetry. And cause in business I've recognized that it's really important to have a lot of relationships. And here's another factoid from, from Robert Sapolsky mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, we have this Dunbar numbers, 150 people that we interact with. Um, if you, the, size of the prefrontal cortex has grown as we've developed more uh, intricate social relationships. So the, the rise of the prefrontal cortex is directly correlated in causal. Uh, he actually said that it's causal. Wow, causal. Uh, that, so that if you interact with a larger degree of people, your prefrontal cortex will grow. Uh, uh, and, so, um, and so in business, it is ideal to have a lot of contacts 
uh, not necessarily strong context, but but weak context, so that you can kind of opportunities come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm forgetting what my original question was. Oh, adversarial. So other people probably recognize this in business as well. So it makes sense to not be adversarial for a lot of people in business, uh, or at least not seem adversarial. Uh, and right. this actually, this is probably the the question is because they everybody has this knowledge that it probably makes sense not to be overt about adversarial, but then this kind of sneaky adversarial thing shows up because I'm a lot of, you know, everybody's people are people, people have enemies, people don't like other people. Uh, and, and so that probably shows up. So it's really weird. And it's, it's something I'm, I think a lot about these days because I, you know, I interact with a lot of people and one of the key things I've recognized about myself is that I do want to be friendly with a lot of different people uh, sometimes they don't want to be friendly with me, uh, and but they won't tell me that. Right. Uh, so it's like it's it's very difficult to to uh, untangle. Yeah. Absolutely, that goes back to I think what we were saying before about if we're wrapped up in our heads, if we're our awareness is on something other than what's happening, what signs or bits of information is being transmitted to us, then we're extremely likely to miss these things and remain in our ignorant position, our asymmetrical position for perpetuity. That is such a good point. And I imagine your battery is running out soon. So uh, let's, uh, let's wrap up. Is there anything that my listeners should know about how, about what you're putting out there in terms of uh, content where they can find out more about what you're, what you're working on? And yes, yeah. absolutely. They can follow me on Twitter at Han Win H U A N W I N. I hope you enjoyed this episode with me and Han. I will be releasing episodes every day, uh, so I've got a whole bunch of episodes on backlog, and so I'm just releasing them one after the other. And I'm trying to give enough context in the description for you to figure out whether you'll enjoy it or not. I'm not sure whether anybody else has the same range of broad interests that I do, um, but it's really exciting for me to share this stuff for you. So I'll be releasing episodes every day. Make sure to tune in. If you liked it, please go ahead and give us a review. Have a great day. Thank you.